this is the Slip Disc Back Chat Podcast with Rainer Hirsch and Norman Lebrecht. Welcome to Back Chat, which is the podcast of Slip Disc. My name is Rainer Hirsch. I'm Norman Lebrecht. And we've had quite an interesting week between us. I think I'm, I'm in Germany at the moment. I'm in Gelsenkirchen. Uh, in darkest Germany, on tour, um, got two more dates to go, got the day off tonight, and I will, got the day, well, the evening off tonight, and I shall be going down to the Christmas market to top up on marzipan. Uh, what have you been up to, Norman? A night at the Wigmore Hall, um, which was quite remarkable, because it was the coldest night in London for 12 years, place was four-fifths full, and it was the London debut of the Leeds competition winner, Alimbus and Baev. And what was really striking was there was a really significant proportion of hardened music pros in that audience. They were out to hear this new kid on the block, and they weren't disappointed. He, he gave a late Schubert sonata of, of just staggering dimensions. So, yes, that's, that's, that's my takeaway for the week. And then I got home, and there was this new CD from another Leeds winner called Eric Liu, also playing a Schubert Sonata, also sensational. I mean, we are on the threshold of a new generation of pianists, which I find incredibly exciting. The only downside, find me a violinist. It's the black hole that nobody wants to look into. We are flooded with pianistic talent. The the Clyburn winner, the phenomenally exciting Yun Chan Lim is going to be making his debut at the Wigmore Hall in a couple of weeks, just fresh into the new year. And there's more coming up behind. There is there are pianists uh, of 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 every type filling our halls, but there is no new violin talent coming through. So there is a story about the Carnegie Hall debut of. Uh, Yasha Heifetz, isn't it, at Carnegie Hall? Oh, it's 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 the it's the American debut of, of Yasha Heifetz. I think it was American debut. Certainly, it's Carnegie Hall debut, and and everybody who was anyone turned out. And there is the um, wonderful violinist Misha Elman sitting next to the doyen pianist Leopold Godowski. and Elman says, "Phew, hot in here." Godowski says, "Not for pianists." Well, um. I have to say, anybody can bring off late Schubert sonatas at the age of 23, I think he is, isn't it? That is something one. That bodes very well because those things, they're over such a vast canvas uh, that it traditionally takes a long time for people to be able to get you know, their heads around it, not their fingers, of course. They're not always the most technically difficult uh, music, but it's architecturally extremely difficult. And um, anyway, so that's very exciting indeed. Anyway, listen, I've got some teasers for you. Uh, here's one rather odd one. Listen to this. That is in fact the sound of a printing press uh, relating to a story that I'd like to talk about. And here's another. Death and the Maiden, the opening there on the uh, string quartet played by the Emerson String Quartet. Well, that those two stories and more of course, we have to uh, keep ourselves in marzipan and spargel when the time comes. And to that end, we need some adverts. And here they are. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Backchat, the podcast of Slip Disc. Um, first thing actually I want to say um is good news about Daniel Barenboim. He is, well, he's coming back. He's not back in business, but he's going to come back for at least one concert. That's right, isn't he? He's going to conduct a New Year's concert, a New Year's Eve concert in Berlin. And it just the fact that he's going to be there, that he's just going to come out, he's going to step onto the podium, um, is just so reassuring when many people had feared that the, the neurological condition that he's suffering from might keep him away for a very long period. Um, so to see him back, to see the will to return um, is wonderfully reassuring and a high note on which to end the year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, against that, also this week, it was on the 14th of December a story, a London music critic collapses and dies in town, and that was Brian Northcott. Um, you must have known him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, he was, a, he, was a, he was as much a composer as he was a critic. Um, and he'd been critiquing around for a bit when um, he signed on to The Independent as chief music critic, and I think it was 1986. The Independent was still pretty new. And he really, he had a pulpit there at The Independent for more than 20 years, and he was very widely read. He was extremely serious. You didn't get a lot of jokes with Ben, and you didn't get a lot of crowd-pleasing things, but he knew his music inside out, and there was a whole range of composers who felt that they'd owed him pretty much all they knew because he was a teacher and a mentor. Um, he was one of the founders of the composer record label, NMC, and an all-round good bloke who, unfortunately was left waiting for a proper NHS diagnosis and died before it arrived. And what I find interesting about that story, of course, you know, I knew his name. I didn't meet him personally. I knew where he wrote and where to read him. Um, but he is in a long line of um, composer critics, actually. Um, I'm thinking of, I thought myself, Robert Schumann, Debussy wrote, you know, he wrote, he wrote uh, uh, under the name of Mr. Koch, Monsieur Koch, or Mr. Mr. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Eighth Note, I think, as they would say. Berlioz, Habig O'Brien had a writing um, for an editing musical opinion. And actually, I'm thinking also of Ivan Hewitt, who who actually wanted to establish himself, wanted to establish himself really as a as a composer, but before feeling that that wasn't his his true uh, calling. You've left one out, Anthony Payne 
was another critic on the independent, and he where he thundered against completing works that composers had left unfinished until he himself completed Elgar's Third Symphony for the BBC. There you go. I think he did that out of sense of duty because he didn't. I mean, the, the Elgar family came to him and didn't want. Well, they said, "Yeah, please go on. Yes, yes, please override our ancestors' wishes." He was well. He basically, I think, essentially, they thought that were. Uh, the you know the copyright heard their copyright on the scraps of the third symphony to lapse that somebody else would do it so they at least would have an official version that they were happy with and that was their reason for doing anyway here is um a little bit of band northcott this is um uh, a song that a duet poet and star Northcott's Poet and Star, which is setting words of Thomas Hardy. That was his contribution to the 20th anniversary celebrations uh, of the... And if that sounded a little slow to you, that's nothing compared to Bayern's piece for horn, his concerto for horn and ensemble, um, which took him eight years to write. He was famously a very, very slow composer, but it all was... All came out on, right on the night. Yeah, but it's it's clearly it's is that every detail is is in there. One can hear that it's very carefully composed. Uh, that's what that's what come that's what comes across from that. Um, so the question about whether composers make better critics than you know I don't know let's say other styles of musician commenting on the on the efforts of others. What do you think? Um, well, composers used to like getting critic posts because they paid rather well. They don't anymore, but they used to. Um, so apart from all the famous European ones that you mentioned, there were people like Virgil Thompson, um, who had a wonderful time as a critic on one of the New York papers and would happily slag off most of his composer rivals and promote his own stuff. Um, but he had a strong and very waspish wit. Um, and then, of course, you have composers who bridled under the onslaughts of critics. You had Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss, both of whom wrote acid little songs about asses, and the asses critics were expected to understand that the asses were them. Um, and then, of course, you have the famous riposte of the not very great German composer Max Reger, who is best known as a musical palindrome. You remember the Max Reger riposte? I you? had your review in front of me shortly. You'll be behind me. Is that the one? I am sitting in the smallest room of my house. I have your review before me. It will shortly be behind. <laughs> and that, but also, there are very waspish um, composer reviews, as you say. César Cui, um, one of the what are the one of the ten or the six or whatever he was a, a group of that 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 composer it was famously bitchy about everybody else and didn't uh, earn himself any friends as a result. But anyway, there he is. Uh, we know how long have Bayern Northcott out there, um, you know, providing his voice, which I think is a shame um, and because one has the feeling that, you know, with, with musical criticism, you know, disappearing largely um, from the press, well, we're losing another voice that was able to 
to speak authoritatively and intelligently about you know new music. Here's my rather enigmatic sound cue. That is the sound of a printing press uh, no longer being used by Toccata Alta Musik, which was uh, an early music magazine in the German-speaking world. It has shut down, it's shut shop. And um, I suppose I was thinking really, again, flowing on from Bayern Northcott, I mean, about music magazines in general and uh, their success or not. In, in the current day and age, when so much, much of it is online, um, does anybody really want to actually buy something to read, read it in their hands to, you know, pour over on long train journeys? Um, do you know what the, the, the biggest classical music magazine seller is in the UK? I've looked this up so I can take you out of misery. Classical Music Magazine, which is the BBC, which has 26,000, according to the uh, ABC. Is it as low as 26,000? Yeah, I, th I think that's, been, that's actually gone up, in fact, from what it used to be. I mean, I used to write for BBC, for BBC Music Magazine, Classical Music, and I think it was lower than that in those days. And so I think it's gone up a bit, but that'd be, that be maybe the wrong impression. But 20, that is an actually audited, uh, you know, readership, because a lot of them have got, you know, just... Uh, something from their press pack, for example, the Strad claims it reaches, quote, an audience of 39,000. Well, that could be them calculating that five people read each copy, which means they've only got a circulation of 8,000. The Pianist similarly reaches 13,000. Gramophone, which has got an audited circulation, uh, has 12,171. I'm not sure whether well, you can actually get down to the single readers. But the fact is, um, you know, again, it's to do with the current, you know, the online business and whether people are actually buying magazines. What do you, what's your view about that? I mean, it really is a very sad tale of decline and fall. Um, Gramophone used to have 60,000. BBC Music Magazine at its peak had 120,000 sales, actual sales. Um, and they were also profitable chiefly because most of their advertising, in fact, almost all of their advertising came from record labels. But record labels don't advertise anymore because people aren't buying records. So music magazines are suffering on both fronts. They're not getting in advertising revenues and they don't seem to be attracting print readers. And nobody has really grappled with that. I mean, the whole... Uh, United States of America doesn't have a single classical music magazine. It has one called Strings for Violinists, and it has a kind of paid-for uh, record magazine where labels pay to have their products reviewed. Um, but, um, you know, that is, that is one great vast emptiness, and it may be that the era of magazines about music is over. Um, they, there also hasn't been a replacement for them on online unless you count slip disc which is definedly a classical music news site well i mean you say that there isn't been a replacement we are podcast is a replacement and when you're talking those kinds of numbers well pretty much as many listeners as those magazines have got readers and i wouldn't mind betting i mean i used to when i in the days before I wrote for uh, BBC Music Magazine, and I would get it every month, and I would it, they would pile up. I wouldn't actually engage with it that much. I'd flick through, I'd read my favourite writers or whatever, or I'd flick to certain parts of it. But I wouldn't sit there reading it from cover to cover. I feel that somebody, once they engage with the podcast, is much more likely to carry on to the end. And, well, we're a lot cheaper to produce, dare I say, Norman, than 
you know, a glossy mag with all the rest of it, all the stuff. We are, we are even cheaper to produce than BBC Radio 3, whose numbers are going down the chute. So, yes, um, the, the future is online, and it's in various forms of activity online. One of the most interesting statistics that I've seen all year was one that I actually published today, which is that YouTube has seen a 90% increase in demand for classical music videos over the year 2022, 90% increase. That's 200 million classical videos have been listened to or watched on YouTube. So something is going on. There is there is uh, a shift in direction of the way that people are consuming classical music. And if we have to write a requiem for music magazines, well, so be it. Something will take their place. Well, I mean, that, that is a nice figure, but I'll be honest with you, the YouTube viewage of classical music items is from a very, very low base. I only watch them from the floor, actually. I see what you do. While doing exercises prescribed by my physiotherapist. I just want to say, I don't think that YouTube is the medium for classical music. YouTube, as I know too well from myself, because I've got lots of clips up there, um, what I do, which is the comedy thing, um, it, it engages people quickly. You know, brevity is the soul of wit and all that. Brevity is not the soul of classical music. And the average, the, the people who are actually watching YouTube, they, they're younger. They're looking at it for, they're watching it for all sorts of different reasons. But you know, they're not watching it to sit through long symphonies, late Schubert sonatas or whatever. And accordingly, although it, people do do that, it is not really the platform that um, is most suited, I think, to enjoyment and consumption of classical music. I think YouTube is symptomatic. Um, it may not be the best place to watch or to listen, but there are several others. There's Idagio and there are, other, there are other streaming services. And there's going to be a very, very big one coming online in 2023, but I'm absolutely handcuffed by lawyers here and can't mention the name. Oh, that is that's such a... Oh, all I can do is just, just give you a little tempter for 2023. That is such a... I'm gonna, I'm gonna come when I'm around your house. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stuff you with marzipan. So <laughs> I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna find something incriminating, and I'll say, I'm gonna, I'm, maybe I'll find the keys to the website, and I'll start putting up salacious stories about you until you tell me who those. Anyway, listen, well, that's something to look forward to in 2023. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, so I've got um, this... I played a little snip of uh, this, this, which is, uh, again, I'll play it again. There's Death of the Maiden. And actually, this is, that's by the Emerson Quartet. And here is 
the wonderful Amadeus String Quartet playing the second subject from the Quartet Satz by Schubert. Um, that's one of those moments in those in in Schubert where you're just you're you're you know you you stop breathing. I think it's such a beautiful moment. Also in the um, the C major quintet. But the story was um, December the fourteenth, um, and he wrote a sombre year that has been a sombre year that has seen the disbandment of the Emerson, the Spectral, and the Arian quartets. Now ends with the news of the Orion String Quartet packing up their bags. Um, are there any great string quartets left? Norman, it used to be the thing when, you know, quartet music or was dominated. There was one quartet that everybody, you know, the world famous, like, like the Amadeus, for example. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, is there, is there one anymore? Does there need to be one? Oh, I think it's, it's moved on considerably. When I was growing up, you went to hear a string quartet. There would be four, four paunchy men on stage who were probably in considerable disagreement with each other and and looking more than a little dyspeptic even as they played wonderfully and that would be the that would be the Amadeus it would be the Alvenberg um they, it was always men there were very few women in string quartets at that time Quartetto Italiano would be another one Quartetto Italiano there were yes there were there was uh, there was one woman in the Quartetto Italiano and they were they were rather different but I don't remember them touring much they were more um one heard them more on record than one saw them in recital but now um, the, the 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 field is dominated by young athletic quartets like the Eben, like the Quarteto Casals from Spain, who play mostly standing up, which is terrifying, <laughs> and um, and clearly enjoy their work. They are um, they actually smile while playing string quartets, which might be a little bit anomalous in Death of the Maiden, but it's going. To, uh, we all know how it's going to end, so you might as well enjoy yourself until it does. It's going to end badly for the Maiden. <laughs> yes, yes, but it's not going to end immediately. It'll be about forty minutes down the road. Um, so have another drink. And uh, I mean, they are the young quartets that I see are really tremendously engaging. They're engaging on a human level. They're engaging on a on a musical level, and though it is. Clearly, this is a milestone year in in the field of string quartets, and the departure of the of the Emersons in particular removes uh, a kind of um, oh, they're 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 a monument in string quartet playing. They they were for a very very long time the best string quartet in America and pretty much anywhere else. And each of their players had some family roots back to the giants uh, in Europe. I sat with them one night, one long um, summer's night in Ottawa in Canada, working out which of us had knew most people who had known Brahms. And each of them had just one or could go by one or two steps to someone in their family or in their very close acquaintance who'd shaken the great man's hand. That sounds like a, that's, that sounds like almost as weird as the time I went with my timpanist. We drove to Europe, and we were waiting to get on the train to go through the tunnel. And the only thing we could find to read while we were waiting this one and a half hours 
was um, an orchestral excerpt book of timpani, the timpani parts from the Mahler symphonies. And we passed the time by me singing the part to him and him trying to guess which symphony it was from. So um, I think I'll see your, uh, how many steps have we got to Brahms' story, and I'll raise you by Mahler's symphony timpani part. I can give you a Brahms story from my late neighbour, um, who, as a very little girl in Vienna, she was born in 1894, um, she was out with her father one day, and she'd been seriously influenced by a very Catholic nanny, and she was talking about God and the, and the Saviour and, and the angels and God and God and God and God. And her father says to her, do you want to see God? I'll show you God. So they come out of the Stadtpark, and they cross the ring, and they go down the side street, and he hammers on the door, and a man opens the door, long-faced, long white beard, and the father points at the man, to the little girl, who told me this, and says, Da! Das ist der lieber Gott! That was Johannes Brahms. Did he have that happen to him frequently, that, you know, people knocking on the door going, that's God? Very possibly. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the existing, the great, you know, long-lived quartets. There's the Kronos, which is still going, I think. They were formed in 1973. There's the Borodin, uh, 1945. I mean, the thing is, of course, what what the Borodin, why they can't possibly have gone since 1945. But they, of course, they were famous for, for knowing and being tutored by Shostakovich. But they're... The the Borodin have had more changes in the past couple of years than we've had governments. Well, exactly. Well, David Nelson, David K. Nelson, writing actually some while ago on the website as a comment, he said um, something quite interesting. In years past, one would expect the Emersons to, as with the Juilliard Pro-IT or Fine Arts Quartet, grow older and older and replace players as needed until it's like the proverbial hundred-year-old axe which has gone through three heads and five handles, nothing original left, but still called a hundred-year-old axe. He said, why, you know, why didn't that happen with the Emersons? Why didn't they do that? Well, I suppose there comes a point when they feel that, for whatever reason, enough of them have had enough. Uh, they don't want to go through the, the process of finding somebody to replace somebody for another seat there, and they decide, let's call it a day. Well, also, somebody's got to teach the new quartets. Um, so there is a kind of duty incumbent on them when they reach that point in their career they should be spending more time teaching interesting you mentioned the chronos because david harrington the first violin of the chronos throughout its existence founded it because he was um deeply depressed by the the, the atrocities in the vietnam war and one night he heard um a piece um by george crumb on the radio a piece that was actually based on schubert's death and the uh, death and the maiden and he decided to, to start a quartet that would play only music by living composers. And that was the beginning of Kronos. And just now, literally this week, I've had the latest Kronos release, which is a recording of a work based on, called Mi Lai, and based on the massacre that American forces committed in that Vietnamese village more than 50 years ago. Okay, no worries. Um I mean, just regard this regarding this longevity of quartets. I mean, you could say, how can we we talk about the England football team, for example, England playing or France, for example? You know, they they they're in the final as we speak of the World Cup, um, which will be played out on the day that this uh, podcast goes live. I mean, uh, the French football team won in two thousand and eighteen. 
uh, the players change, but we still call them the French football team. So is what's so bad about, you know, the ethos, I suppose, of a quartet continuing under different, you know, practitioners, so to speak? Ah, it's, there is, there is some kind of mystique, um, as there is in a marriage of two or four individuals <laughs> conducting a very long relationship um, in conditions of extreme intimacy. And when you change partners, it's never really the same, is it? What I think also classical music benefits greatly from is um, is, is seeing on the stage people they know full well. They know something about their story. I actually think that's the success of the Lebec sisters, partly. Not only they're brilliant pianists, which they are, but frankly, between you and me and, you know, our listeners, there are many other brilliant duettists out there, but they're sisters. They come on, they have a, they have a relationship, and that exists, you know, in our imaginations once they've left the stage as well. And that makes the thing even more special. And I think, you know, um, some old farts sitting together playing whatever it is, Mozart quartets from memory because they've been doing it for so long, they know exactly how one another plays it. That has that same quality. It has, it has a quality of intimacy. It also has a quality of combat. You cannot have a string quartet without combat. They cannot be in, in, in agreement at, at any point because there are four individuals and, and they have strong viewpoints that they have to play off against each other. If you look back in the archives of Slip Disc, you will find an account by a, um, a, a string quartet player called Anthea Creston who joined the Artemis Quartet with pretty much the best German quartet of their time. And what she's essentially chronicling for us week after week is the life of a string quartet and between the lines, the decline and disintegration of a string quartet, the Artemis no longer exists. Um, and that's, that's a drama that oh, one could turn it into an opera. It's a really wonderful story. Well, I mean, there are, of course, apoc stories apocryphal, possibly, about members of the Amadeus String Quartet not even staying in the same hotel uh, anymore. I'm, I, I don't know how much of that is true. Oh, they, they never, uh, they never travelled in the same railway carriage. Right. Okay. Well, I think that comes a point. I mean, when you've said everything there is to say, and you probably actually, by the way, want to preserve your conversation for the stage when you're actually doing it to some extent. Yeah, yeah, up to a point, but there's always more music. And I, I, I mean, I knew the Amadeus in their later years and I knew them after they retired. And um, and one of them said to me, biggest regret, they, they'd never heard of Janáček. They would have loved, if they'd heard of Janáček, they would have loved to record his quartets. So there are always things that are left undone and nothing is ever finished. Uh, it, it is not, um, it's not in the hands of man to to finish the things that you want to. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, the, the, the Amadeus String Quartet, I was brought up with him uh, because um, my father was interned on the Isle of Man with um, Norbert Brenin and uh, Peter Schidloff, and they came over from Vienna and they met one another then. So he used to go backstage and sort of uh, say hello to them for that for that reason. Um, anyway, that the we we've lost one of the members of the current firmament of string quartet, and 
possibly what is true is what um, David Nelson also says, perhaps in another way, the fact there is no one sort of guiding light in the world of string quartet means that, that actually the, the, those people like the, the, the Joachims and the Budapest string quartet have finally won their battle. The string quartet is now no, no longer esoteric music making. And because and they have spawned all these other groups who take it up, take up the 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 fight for want of a better word in a different way. And there's nothing special. There's a string quartet program on at the Wigmore Hall, and you know, so so what basically? It, it's one of the forms in music that has really evolved most in my time. Um, you know, there used to be a hierarchy. There was first violin, second violin. Now, most of the young quartets, they interchange. They don't refer to themselves as first or second. Um, they always used to play sitting down. Now, some of them play standing up. Some even walk around. Sometimes, yeah. you know, the first playing second and vice versa. That's right. That's right. Some of them... Um, the, I, I can't remember who it was, but one I saw playing without music, which I thought, oh my God, that's brave. Um, especially since everybody in the audience was sitting there with the music. <laughs> it was another of those. It was another of those nights where all the hardened pros turned out of the Wigmore Hall. I have to say. In praise of the Wigmore Hall, and I'll declare an interest in a moment, but in praise of the Wigmore Hall, I don't think there is a space on earth that presents more debuts of young talent than this rather bijou uh, London venue on Wigmore Street, just behind John Lewis, if you're shopping there. What, what's your interest? Are you a director of the Wigmore Hall? No, 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 but they very kindly decided to put on the launch of my next book, Why Beethoven, at the end of January. Ah, splendid. Um, all right, so listen, I've got a couple of quick stories. One is the Chopin competition winner, Song Jin Cho, who arrived in the United States with nothing to wear because Air France lost all his stuff. And he basically came on in, in the promoter's suit, essentially. Um, and of course, I've got sympathy with him. But listen, if you're a touring artist, that kind of, that kind of stuff happens. One of my soloists had to go on, I'm not making this up, in his socks because he forgot his shoes. Um, and so he went on his socks and nobody kind of noticed. <laughs> what have you lost? Wait, 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 wait a minute. Were they, they were even socks, not odd ones, and they didn't, and they didn't have holes. Well, pro- he was a musician. They probably did have holes. I just wonder whether Xiong Jin Cho couldn't he gone out and bought some because, you know, that's... that's a- there literally wasn't time. I mean, he's one of the nicest young people on the circuit and Air France had just lost his luggage and the picture of him poor chap in a shirt that was three sizes too large for him uh, because there is a um, uh, physical discrepancy between young koreans and large american promoters <laughs> but the sight of him going on stage like that and still giving a performance that actually knocked the socks off the audience well there you go We've all lost stuff. Let us know what stuff you've lost on flights. If you're a performer out there, I mean, it's happened to so many people. The final thing I want to I want to close with, uh, you know, we were always reading, uh, you know, about people we don't, not necessarily, you know, household names, but each one, you know, ask not for whom the bell tolls and all that. I'm talking about uh, this is uh, a headline: sudden death of a Grammy-winning U.S. tenor, age 73. We're talking about John Ayler who was a very fine tenor. He turned down performing at the Met 
because he said he didn't like the size of that house, and that's got that's he's got balls there, basically. If you pardon the uh, mis- mixed metaphor, him being a tenor and everything, but <laughs> he said he preferred smaller European houses, and um, he's passed away at the age of seventy-three. And I I couldn't help feeling, you know, every time I read about that, I, I, I read about you know the loss of, of a talent, a highly developed talent, and I thought we would close with just listening to John Ayler. Here he is in in an aria from. Handle Semele, it's where'er you walk. So um, this is us signing off for another edition of Back Chat. Uh, it's been great talking to you again, Norman. Um, I'm Rainer Hirsch. I'm Norman Lebrecht. Have a wonderful holiday season. Yeah, speak to you. Well, we will have one more episode before the holiday start. But until then, here is John Ada. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.